Let us pray. Father, now as we turn our hearts toward your word, we ask God that you speak to us. Make us hungry for your word. Open our eyes by your Holy Spirit's anointing to see the truth of your word. Open our minds to comprehend the truth of your word and write your word upon our hearts, Father, that we might not sin against you. And now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning from Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2 is God's Faithful Plan of Restoration. As we look over the course of the next eight or nine weeks at Nehemiah's life, we'll we'll take an in-depth look at the book of Nehemiah. We'll see the character of Nehemiah. We'll see a man who is a great champion of the faith. Um, Maybe some of us, many of us perhaps aren't aware of much of Nehemiah this morning. And so over the course of the next several weeks, we'll learn about this great man of the faith, Nehemiah, and how God used one man to bring about restoration and reformation in the life of his people, the people of Israel, the people in Jerusalem. And so if you're following along in the chairback Bible, you'll see that the page, page 398 is where Nehemiah begins. But even before Nehemiah begins, there on page 398, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one work, one book, in fact, in the Hebrew text, in the Hebrew Bible, they were, they were known as one work. And the author is thought to be the, the same author of Ezra and Nehemiah and First and Second Chronicles. And so they call him the chronicler. And some say it's Ezra and some say it's Nehemiah. And I don't have a problem with either one of those because we have firsthand account of Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah where he's speaking in first person and telling us about himself and about the ministry that's going on. But I think it's telling for us in Second Chronicles chapter 36 to see what exactly was going on at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. Because it, it gives us a hint, it, it clues us in as to what's going on. And so Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 17 through 23. Listen as I quickly read through an introduction to our text this morning. Jerusalem had been captured and burned. And the chronicler writes, Therefore... He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or age. He gave all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and the princes and all all these he brought to Babylon and burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. So now in Nehemiah, we're in the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word, verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And so the book of Ezra begins there. In fact, the first couple of verses in Ezra begin with the same words that 2 Chronicles ends with here. And so you know the storyline, Ezra, Zerubbabel first leads a wave of of exiles back and they begin repopulating Jerusalem, begin working on the temple, Uh, the the kingdom changes hands, uh, uh, an edict is issued and they have to stop working on the temple, they have to stop working on, on rebuilding the walls, and then another edict, the Leadership kings change hands again. Another edict is issued and they continue working on the temple. And then we find ourselves in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is about 445 B.C., 444 maybe B.C. And we see that through Nehemiah, there are some things that have happened in the midst of the people, in the midst of the land, in the midst of the city of Jerusalem. And things are laid Desolate. Things are, are in a difficult way. Nehemiah receives word in verses 1 through 3 of Nehemiah chapter 1. Hear what the word of the Lord says. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah receives this report of the deplorable condition of the city of Jerusalem. The scene is one of devastation. The question I began asking as I was reading and thinking through and praying through this text is what, what story do the broken down walls and the gates of Jerusalem communicate to us about God's people? God's people were defenseless living in Jerusalem. They had no protection. They were open to attacks from, from pillagers and from bands of thieves. They were experiencing great trouble and great shame. They were unable to live in freedom and to worship God freely. They were unable to enjoy the security of daily life. And even though God's people were called to be distinct from the world, there was no distinction for the people who were living in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's broken walls and burned gates represented the dashed hopes and broken identity of God's people Israel. And get this, by all appearances, the kingdom of the world had overcome the kingdom of God and it almost completely destroyed God's covenant people. That was then. I think today, now, we see a similarity in the church The church itself today is under attack. The attack is less subtle in America than in other places around the globe where Christians are beaten or or they're martyred for their faith. We live in a post-Christian era. 
And our metaphorical burned out gates and broken down walls are none other than the testimonies of our very lives as members of the community of faith, of of God's people. Failed marriages, broken homes, wayward children, unholy entertainment, addictions, fighting, bickering that leads to church splits, moral failures. The list could go on and on and on describing the ineffectiveness of the church in many ways today. But hear this, Scripture says, Scripture says in in 1 Peter 2.9, we are to be a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into light. So it stands, we need to recapture a vision of God on His throne. In the glorious calling of the church, we need to recapture what God wants the church to do and and catch a vision of that in the midst of this dark world. You see, because the reason is we too are exiles living in a foreign land who need to cry out to God with great dependence and with humble repentance. We we need to ask God to do a great work, a work that only he can do by his Holy Spirit through the church. You see, what's needed today is restoration of the church A restoration of God's people. And we see here laid out in Nehemiah. God's faithful plan of restoration for his people. So this morning I want to give us three instructive points from Nehemiah 1 and 2. These points can serve as a model for, I think, for the advancement of God's kingdom through the church. For that's how God desires to advance his kingdom. It's through the church. So first, I want you to see this, that Nehemiah was passionate and he was prayerful about advancing God's kingdom. Nehemiah was passionate and prayerful about advancing God's kingdom. We see this in verses 1 through 11. But listen, Nehemiah's zeal for God motivated him to take action. And that's important for us to see. Because the zeal for God that he had, it consumed him and it drove him to his knees in prayer. And so first, I want us to notice Nehemiah's response to their report in verse 4. Verse 4 says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I think Nehemiah's first response to the trouble that he hears about is instructive for us. What's he do? He says, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and then I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Why does this news bring Nehemiah to tears? I think it brings him to tears because he was zealous for God's name to be exalted among the nations. And he knew that it wasn't being exalted among the nations. Nehemiah was a man who had a deep concern for the advancement of God's kingdom. And he was burdened for God's people. I want to ask us this morning, how often does Nehemiah's response in verse 4 characterize our response to the reports that we hear today of persecution of the church? I'm afraid the answer is an indictment on all of us. When we hear the reports of church leaders falling in immorality and churches splitting because of unwise leadership, 
Does it grieve us? I don't think it's our natural response to weep and to mourn and to intercede before the God of heaven with fasting and praying. And so that's why this is such a great challenge to us. You see, if we love God in the advance of his glory, then we'll feel a deep sense of sorrow when the advance of the gospel is halted. And we should fast and we should pray. That's what Nehemiah does. Let me encourage you, if this doesn't describe the cultivation of your heart before the Lord, then let us take note of the source of Nehemiah's passion and fervor before the Lord. I think it begins to come out in his prayer in verses 5 through 11. In verse 5, Nehemiah appeals to God's covenant faithfulness, and he gives us three statements about God. In verse 5, And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. First, he makes the declaration, O Lord God of heaven. You know what his declaration is? His declaration is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true God. For he takes a Persian phrase, a God of heaven, and he takes that and he applies it to his God. And he says, my God, O Lord God, you are the God of heaven. You are the great an awesome God, he says in verse, the second part of verse 5. The great and awesome God. You know, Dr. David and I talk about this some, and he, we kind of speak about it among the elders, and it's kind of a soapbox for him. But when you hear this word awesome, what, what does this word awesome describe? It doesn't describe a great trick that was done on a, on a, on a, ski board, a, a skis or a great trick that was done on a wakeboard. It doesn't describe a... Um, any, any other great feat? No, the word awesome, it describes and characterizes God. It means that we are, we are in fear of this mighty, great God, the one who is enthroned above all. He's greater than all other gods, and it's, and it, it, it's fearful to come under his judgment. He is truly awesome, and he is worthy of praise He's a just God, and he alone is worthy. So Nehemiah shows us that he's not only the creator and God of heaven, he is an awesome God. He is a God that's worthy to be feared. And thirdly, we see from Nehemiah's appeal to God's covenant faithfulness, we see that he is faithful to his covenant. He is the God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He's a God who keeps his promises. Get that, church. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. He does not remove his hand from his people. He says, I'll I'll never leave you, right? I, I won't forsake you. God's faithful. Where does Nehemiah get that from? He gets it from Deuteronomy chapter Four, among other places in, in Scripture, but in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 25, when When you father the children, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, speaking of the children of Israel, before they go into the promised land, Moses is delivering this covenant from God to his people. And he tells them this. If you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything 
and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger. I call, Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over in, over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And listen, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone and work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat or smell. But from there, listen, from there, where Nehemiah is right now, from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search him, search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. You see, God is a a faithful covenant God. And you know what Nehemiah does? He goes to God in prayer in the midst of this difficult circumstance and situation in his life. And he begins calling on God in his faithfulness. He begins calling out to God and crying out to God based upon God's faithfulness, that he is the sovereign ruler of all, that he's in control of all things. Nehemiah knows exactly where he can go. And I want you to see something else that Nehemiah does. Nehemiah confesses the sins of the people, and he also confesses his own sinfulness. We see that in verses 6 and 7. And you know what he confesses? He confesses that the root issue for God's people is a heart issue. Isn't this the case for you and us? When we find ourselves loving sin more than loving God, we find ourselves pursuing the the passions or pleasures of the flesh more than we pursue passion for God, pleasure in God. They've strayed from God in their devotion. They've forsaken God, their deliverer. That's what Deuteronomy 4 was about, the blessing and the curse of the covenant. And because they have found themselves outside of God's will, they are, they've found themselves outside of God's plan and God's desire for them as a, as a holy people, he has caused them to go into exile. And so Nehemiah confesses the sins of the people. He confesses his own sin and implication in the sin of the people. You see, if we're to be passionate and prayerful about advancing God's kingdom... You know, we can't just look at the sin in the lives of other people. We must be confessional. We must be a confessional people who demonstrate repentance over our own sin. You see, personal repentance is a necessity in the life of God's people. And if the church is going to advance God's kingdom, here's the thing, church. We must live confessionally. We must encourage one another, exhort one another... Not pointing out the plank in somebody else's eye before we remove it from our own, but exhorting one another in love and patience, concern. I want you to see something else about Nehemiah that he models for us. Nehemiah knew and prayed God's word. Verses 8 and 9. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. You see, Nehemiah was a man filled with the knowledge of God's word. 
and he calls on God to act in accordance with his word. As we read from Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 31. Nehemiah knows the covenant God made with his people through Moses. And now, as he's living in exile because of those very sins that Moses cited, he is calling out to God saying, we've repented. What's Nehemiah doing here? I think Nehemiah is exercising faith. And he's, he's, he's believing in God and believing upon God's word. When he says, remember the word you commanded, it's not that God has forgotten the word that he commanded. He hasn't forgotten his promise. Instead, Nehemiah is exercising faith for a work that he knows only God can accomplish. Only God can restore the community. It's that bad. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned. There's no hope outside of God. The challenge we ought to see from Nehemiah's faithfulness is that we must be a people who know and pray God's word. Let us, church, so saturate our minds with God's word so that we might be a people who pray God's word. And so that we might align our lives with the hope of his glorious gospel. So are you praying that God will use your life and testimony and his word to have gospel transformation in the life of, of coworkers, in the life of, of your children, parents, in the lives of fellow classmates, in, in your marriages, in our, in our homes? Are we actively setting our minds on things above, Colossians 3, 2? Are we daily praying for the gospel to be demonstrated through us? Are we daily praying for God's transforming power to be at work through our lives, to be on demonstration for others to see? I mean, do we wake up in the morning and, and have that time in prayer? Or throughout the day, we, we pause and have those moments in prayer where we're asking God to demonstrate His power in and through us, to make His name known in the midst of the city, in the midst of the world? This is what Nehemiah is doing. And I want you to see finally that it results in our being disciples who possess deep concern for God's people. In verses 10 and 11, Nehemiah had a deep concern for God's people. I want you to notice Nehemiah wasn't the only one praying. He wasn't the only one asking God to work in the midst of the community of his people. It says there in verse 10, they, were, they are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. You see, prayer calls us to action. And prayer prompts the hand of God to do great and glorious things through our lives. Now, verse 11 ends, interestingly, Nehemiah then discloses to us, he kind of gives the full hand at this point. He says, now, I was the cupbearer to the king. I think it would have been easy for Nehemiah to look around at the comfort of the palace and enjoy the benefits of life and ease and comfort Listen, he was the cupbearer to the king. That means there wasn't any meal or drink that went before the king that he did not first taste. 
Because if somebody was going to assassinate the king, one of the ways they would do it would be to poison the king's food. And so Nehemiah was a trusted man. God had placed Nehemiah in this particular place for a reason. And so he wasn't content to sit idly by and to watch God's kingdom and God's people be subject to open shame. No, his knowledge of God's word and his passion for God's kingdom was met with with a tenacious prayer for the advancement of God's glory. Church, are we passionate and prayerful for the advancement of God's kingdom? Does that describe our lives? Does that describe our hearts that we're passionate, we're prayerful for God's advancing of his kingdom? The second instructive point I want us to see this morning is regarding the advancement of of God's kingdom. Nehemiah was was prepared when God provided opportunity for his work. We see this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. I remember the summer following my freshman year in high school. Uh, I was playing uh, I was playing ball on an American Legion team and we were traveling. It was a lot of the guys from the high school team that were playing. And of course I as an underclassman I, I didn't get much playing time. So mostly, I just kind of went along and I rode the bench, okay? But there were times when I would get to run out and warm up the pitcher while the catcher got to suit up, you know, because the pitcher had to get warmed up between innings. And so I I really didn't have much of a a role to play on the team. I was a young guy. But I I worked really hard and diligently in the batting cages at practice. I would give everything I had in practice, doing all that I could to, to hone and to sharpen my skills, and during one of the last games of the season, we were playing in Karen Crow. And I remember they had a massive field. In fact, it was pretty intimidating. And I hadn't played all season. I hadn't even gotten to bat all season. But it, it didn't matter. I knew that I was paying my dues and that one day I, it would come time and I, I would be able to bat. I'd be able to be in the game. We'd been facing a pretty stout pitcher in this particular game. None of the guys on the team were able to hit. And I guess coach just thought, what the heck, we'll give it a shot. Taylor, you're up. I said, what? <laughs> he said, you're up. I said, when? He said, now. You're pinch hitting. I said, okay. So I grab my bat. I walk into the on-deck circle. I begin warming up. And I step up to the plate. And as I step up, I knock off some of the imaginary dirt from my cleats because I didn't have any on them. And my, my uniform, you can imagine, I haven't played all season. So my uniform is just this bright, glowing white. Outfielders are getting blinded when I step up to the plate. In fact, whenever I stepped up to the plate, I noticed the outfielders all took a few steps in. I wish I could tell you that I took the pitcher uh, to the end of the count and worked him hard and made him waste all his pitches. Honestly, I don't remember. But the one thing I do remember is when he threw the ball, I smashed it up the center, off the center field fence. Everyone was surprised. Even me, I was surprised. I felt like a hero. It it was great. Here's the thing. I was prepared, right? I was prepared when the coach called. And I was prepared to do the job that he wanted me to do. You know what I learned that day? Always be ready, right? Always be ready. Nehemiah demonstrates that for us. He labors diligently in prayer, waiting on God's timing. Look in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year, King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why, uh, I'm sorry, why is your face sad 
seeing you are not sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city and the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? I want you to notice from chapter 1, verse 1 in the month of Kislev to chapter 2, verse 1 in the month of Nisan, several months have passed since Nehemiah received this devastating news. And several months have passed since Nehemiah began fasting and praying over what he should do. But you know what he's been doing in these three or four months that have been passing? He's been waiting on God. It's a great and glorious thing. Waiting on God doesn't mean inactivity in prayer. Waiting on God means trusting in God's divine timing. He was continuing in prayer and fasting. Each day he went before the king. And each day as he went before the king, he was wondering, God is today the day. Don't you see that in verse 11? Verse 11, his prayer. Give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah didn't know when the day would come when he would be called upon to take this step of faith and employ that which God had been placing upon his heart. But know this, he was ready. He had been diligently praying and waiting on God's timing. It was Henry Blackaby who said, find out where God's at work and join him. Friends, we must be active and diligently seeking to know the work of the Lord And to know the work that the Lord desires of us for the advancement of his kingdom. And we must be ready to join him when the opportunity arises. Nehemiah was ready. And so in verse 4, when the king said to me, what are you requesting? You know what he did? So I prayed to the God of heaven. He sent up an arrow prayer. He, He models complete dependence upon God. You know what just happened when he said, so I prayed to the God of heaven? Nehemiah's private prayer life has just infiltrated his daily vocation and given him an opportunity to advance God's kingdom. You see that? He's been praying about this in private, fasting and mourning. He's been weeping. He's been diligently seeking God's guidance, and he's been waiting, waiting for the opportunity, even praying, God, give me favor in the eyes of this man. To the point that when he was sad, the king notices, and the first words out of Nehemiah's mouth was, let the king live forever. That wasn't a throwaway line. That was him saying, I want the king to live forever because I know that he can take my life right now. You see, here's the thing. When we live with complete dependence on God, then we'll be ready when the opportunity arises. You know what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2? He says, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience in teaching. Or Peter, in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let me ask you a question. What are the important issues that we're seeking God's direction in? 
and seeking an answer from God too, both corporately and individually in our lives. What are those important issues that we're seeking God about? Corporately? Are we seeking God about the spiritual growth of the body? Are we seeking God, asking Him, praying, calling out to Him, depending upon Him for revival? Are we praying for anointed teachers in our Sunday school classes? Are we praying for the membership, the body to be growing spiritually, even numerically? Are we praying about the new worship space that we're, we're considering and looking at and, and, and continuing to ask God for? Are these matters of continual prayer before the Lord so that we're saying, Okay, Lord, when it's time, we're ready. We're depending upon you. We're trusting in you. We're waiting for your lead. What about individually? Are we seeking God on behalf of our marriages? Our marriage, singular? Are we seeking God and his salvation for our children, our co-workers, maybe our neighbors? Are we asking for God's favor in their eyes so that the gospel might have an opportunity to speak into their lives? Are we asking God for personal growth in Christ and opportunities to witness of the gospel in our own lives? You see, here's the thing. Nehemiah was laboring diligently in prayer, and he was depending on God in prayer. And I want you to see what happens when we we find ourselves in the same place. Prayer prepares God's servant to respond aptly. In verses 5 through 8, Nehemiah responds very aptly. He's been praying about what God would do and how God would use him. And I want you to notice, Nehemiah doesn't give some off-the-cuff, spontaneous response. No, he shows that he's been thinking about this, praying about it. It's a well-articulated plan that's been birthed in the prayer, prayer, prayer closet, and it's been formed in his mind and in his heart, and it's been formed by God. Nehemiah gives time for the journey. The king says, well, what are you requesting? He says in verse 5, it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight... Send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And then he says, here's the timeline for the journey. Verse 6, the king asked him about the timeline. Second thing is that he knows what authorization he's going to need. Verse 7, he tells him exactly what he's going to need, the letters that he's going to need. Thirdly, he, he knows the materials that he's going to need for the wall. He knows what... Materials he'll need for the city, even for his own dwelling there in verse 8. And you know what else? He's prayed for God's favor in verse 8. He sought God to direct him and to give him favor. And I would exhort us to follow Nehemiah's footsteps in seeking to be used of God in this way. First, I, I want to exhort us to study God's word so that his word informs our prayers. Right? Nehemiah was praying God's word back to him. And so you and I, we we ought to be praying God's word back to him. Let God's word inform our prayers. But not only let God's word inform our prayers, let's let God's word direct our steps even. Let him tell us where to go and and what to do. Let Let him lead us and direct us in each day. Third, let's let's pray for God to do what he promises to do in his word, right? The gates of hell won't prevail against the church. God desires to see 
people come to faith in him. He desires to see people converted. Let's ask God to do the work that he wants to do. And let's ask God to do the work through us that he wants to do. The conversion of souls, the growth of the body, the discipleship in Christ, protecting and, 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 and blessing and anointing even our homes as we seek to raise children that are, that are desiring to walk with God. Let us pray God's word and let us pray God's word according to what he promises to do in his word. And then fourthly, let us be diligent to consider what God wants to do in and through our lives. Through the gifts that he's given us, with the vocations in which he's called us to be in, and get this, in the body in which he has placed us. Let's be diligent to consider what God wants to do in and through our lives. Look at what happened in verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked. You know why? Because the good hand of my God was upon me. You see, when God wants it to happen and wants it to be successful, he's in control and he will bring it to pass. Well, quickly, the third instructive point for us this morning. Well, let me ask you this question. Church, are we prepared to make the most of the opportunities that God gives us to advance his kingdom in the hope of the gospel. Are we prepared for that? I pray that we will be. I pray that it becomes part of our, our prayer time and asking the Lord to work through us. The third instructive point in advancing God's kingdom that we need to see is this. Nehemiah was purposeful in his work and he testified of God's favor. This is verses 9 through 20. We can be assured of this, verses 9 and 10. When we engage in the work of God, opposition is going to arise. Just know that, believer. Know that when you begin doing a work for God in a God-sized way, opposition will arise. This isn't new to Christianity. It's not even new to God's people. Ever since the curse and sin and the fall in the garden, God has been at work in the lives of his people and Satan, the adversary, has been at work trying to destroy and to oppose God's work among his people. We saw it in the book of Acts in the spread of the church. We see it in the ministry of Christ as we read through the gospel accounts in the New Testament. So we know that opposition will arise. Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite the servant, they heard what was going on. It displeased them, and they, they were mad that, that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. But I want you to see this. Nehemiah was faithful in formulating a plan to move forward, and that's verses 11 through 16. Verses 11 through 16 detail kind of the reconnaissance mission that, that Nehemiah embarks on. And I think it's instructive for us today as we find ourselves living in a post-Christian era. We can expect persecution. In fact, Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 10, 16, when persecution comes, he says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Notice what Nehemiah says in verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. I love that line because it says so much by saying so little. I think it confronts the inadequate thoughts that we have regarding our own inabilities. 
This wasn't some grand plan that Nehemiah came up with and asked God to bless. No, this was something that God had given him. He had put it into his heart. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. You see, God plants a God-sized work in the heart of Nehemiah, and he does so in the hearts and the minds of his servants. And so in verse 16... I want you to notice that he wasn't going to be doing the work alone. Because in verse 16 it says, I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. (laughs) He hadn't told them yet, but they were about to get busy. They were about to be doing the work of rebuilding the wall. Here's the takeaway there, church. God doesn't expect us to do this work of advancing the kingdom alone. No, he's given us of his Holy Spirit. He's deposited his spirit within us. He's given us a community of faith to live life and to do life together, to encourage one another, to to hold one another up, and to, to walk alongside one another, to invest and to engage in one another's lives. And so Nehemiah calls on God's people to join the work in verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. How does he call God's people to join the work? Well, he testifies of God's favor and blessing. In verse 17, he's saying to them, God's name is at stake here. And remember, Nehemiah is a man who is zealous for God's name to be exalted. What better way to exalt God's name than to do something that's completely outside of their power and their ability? That's the greatest way that God's going to exalt his name. The question I would ask us to consider is how is God's name at stake in the city today, in Baton Rouge? God's name is is at stake in, in the lives of his people. We're the new temple The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so the question I would ask us is, what what walls and gates need work in our lives? Our marriages, our children. Do our eye gates need attention? Do we need to put guards over our eyes and our ears and our mouths? Friend, this morning, is your life laying in ruins like the city of Jerusalem was laying in ruins? I want you to know that there's a leader, there's a comforter greater than Nehemiah who can deliver you from the carnage of sin. There's one who's more zealous for God's name to be exalted, who's more zealous for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done than Nehemiah was. And his name is Jesus Christ. It was Christ who gave his life to bring ultimate restoration and to bring deliverance for God's people And get this, it's through the church that God wants to advance his kingdom today in the world, in this city. And so in verse 18, Nehemiah has rallied the troops. He's encouraged them. He's testified of God's goodness. He says, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And even though there was opposition that came against them, Sanballat and the Horonite, uh, and Tobiah in verse 19. 
verse 20 says that they stayed the course and they trusted God with the results. Nehemiah said, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. Church, I want to ask us this morning, are we planning for God's work and testifying of his of his favor in our lives to one another, to encourage each other, to strengthen each other? You see, God's faithful plan of restoration involves the church being on mission with him. Are we living lives of service to Christ? Are are we being good stewards of the grace gifts that God has given us and employing them for the service of God's kingdom? Maybe in the closing challenge this morning, maybe for you today, what's simply needed is to cry out to God To cry out with great dependency upon him so that you'll be prepared to follow God into the opportunities that he gives you in advancing his kingdom. Maybe for some today there's a great need for a deliverer. Someone to give you hope and to restore your walls or to restore your gates because your life, the city of your life is in shambles. And you need to turn to Christ because he is the one who can restore and has the power to transform and the power to restore. That's you this morning. Cry out to God. He's near and he will hear you. Maybe for some this morning, it looks like joining the work of the gospel and linking arms with the body of Christ together as a community of saints to to do this work of transforming the city together. However the Lord is challenging you this morning and leading you, maybe in a hundred different ways, I have no idea. I want to challenge you to commit that to the Lord, to pray, to seek His face, and to cry out to Him in dependence. Let me close this in prayer. And you respond this morning as the Lord is leading you, let us pray. Father, as we come to this time in our service, we want to respond to your word. Really, we want to respond from passionate hearts. We want our lives to be filled with, with prayer like Nehemiah's was. And we want to be, we want to, we, we want to see this model lived out in our own lives. And so God, strengthen us for For the work of your service, make us zealous and passionate for advancing your kingdom. Give us eyes to see the opportunities you provide for us, Lord, and and give us strength to cry out to you, even in the midst of just destruction in our lives. We ask, God, that you would strengthen us today to respond to your word. May your word create within us a a well of strength and a, a source of hope. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand?